Coast to coast, nonstop action. This is the premier source for National Hockey League news. Scores, highlights, and the Anaheim Ducks. It's time to light the lamp with Alexis Downing. Welcome to Light the Lamp here on Duckstream. I am your host, Alexis Downey, coming to you from the Paul Korea studio. I hope your week is going well so far as we bring you episode 33 of LTL. I think it's officially time for me to get into Christmas music as we get closer to the holidays. I was listening to some on my way into the office this morning, and it had me so excited for the coming weeks. I love this time of the year. But you know what else I love? An Anaheim Ducks win, and that is exactly what we got last night at Honda Center. A big overtime win against the Carolina Hurricanes 4-3 to on Tuesday night. The Ducks looked really physical in this one, and it also helped end their six-game skid. A good momentum booster for this team at home in front of their crowd. Carolina is really great on the forecheck, but the Ducks were able to match that and stay in the entire game, something that they have struggled with so far in this season. I really liked what we saw in a lot of different aspects of their game. So to talk about it, we look ahead to AD's takeaways now. Overall, this was a great effort by the Ducks, a strong start getting on the board first and keeping pace with the Hurricanes' fast attack. They were putting shots on net, and I was very impressed with the speed of those shots. But the Ducks, like I said, were able to match that, and they really did a great job of blocking a lot of those shots as well. The first and third period in particular, the team looked really good. The second period wasn't as good, but coming out in the third and having a strong finish was important for the Ducks to then eventually get on to their win. They had good first touches, which was one of the keys that head coach Dallas Akins had shared with us, as well as good zone time. And we saw production from a couple different lines, which is always good to see. But I really liked the line of Max Jones, Mason McTavish, and Brett Leeson. I thought they did a great job grinding it out through this game. In particular, Brett Leeson impressed me on Tuesday night. I remember sitting and thinking during the first period that he was having a strong game. And then he came out in the second and did put a goal in the back of the net off a great pass by Mason McTavish. Dallas did praise that line in particular after the game. You can listen to that right now. Lisa's goal was a huge one, like right after they had scored. Uh, and, and again, another one, like we wall work, dirty, get the puck in. Like it, it's, uh, um, it's always interesting on, you know, you, you watch games every night and you see all those highlights. Boy, they're beautiful goals. And then you don't see the 30 that are just hardworking. And, and uh, so, you know, I thought that line was really good. I thought McTavish played a, a good game. Obviously, Lee's scoring again. Um, he, he continues to improve. And, and Jonesy's playing as, as hard as anybody on our, on our team right now. Another positive, Max Comtois back in the lineup after missing 11 games, and he made his presence known as he had a big goal in the first period to retake the lead for the Ducks and close that one out. That's another important thing to note. The Ducks were never down in this game. They were always ahead, even though Carolina was able to battle back and match each of their goals. They stayed ahead. And they also stayed out of the box and killed both of the penalties that the Hurricanes had. So certainly a positive on that end of special teams. One of the biggest difference makers in this game was the fact that the team has improved in their overtime play. 
We talked with Ryan Strom about his goal and how he closed it out in overtime, and he shared his thoughts after the game in the locker room. You can hear it now. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in overtime, you want to try to take advantage. I think, um, you know, this year I feel like I got a little more confidence in overtime for whatever reason, and um, I think you got to go out there with the intention to try to win the game. I think that's what we did. We possessed the puck, and we held on to it, and um, we got one chance. We buried it, so... um, you know, good effort tonight, obviously. They're, they're a good hockey team, as we all know. And I think we uh, limit them most of the game. Obviously, they had a pretty good push in the third period. But, um, you know, we'll take two points and then we can get them. I also asked Jerome, it looked like when he was taking the puck into the zone, he kind of hesitated before he took the shot that would go in and be the overtime winner. And he said, well, he saw Frank Vetrano off to the left and he thought about passing it to him. But sometimes you just have to take that shot. And we are glad he did because that would be the one to close out the Ducks win. Just a lot of positives from this game. I love the energy that the team had. Also in the locker room, you could tell afterwards that they were buzzing, really happy with that win. I mean, Carolina is a tough team. They work really hard on the ice. They skate well. I've mentioned it before. Their four check is really strong. So to get a quality win over a team like this definitely will give the Ducks some confidence into the rest of the week as they have practice on Wednesday and Thursday. And then they will host the San Jose Sharks on Friday for a 7 p.m. puck drop. You can listen right here on Duckstream, as always, to the call by Steve Carroll, Dan Wood, and Josh Brewster. But it's time to go coast to coast now to hear some of the best goal calls from around the NHL on Tuesday night. And of course, we have to start with our very own Anaheim Ducks and Carolina Hurricanes overtime winner. The exciting ending to the Ducks game. As I mentioned, Strom jumping on the ice, taking it into the zone off a pass from Cam Fowler and shooting it for that winner one minute and 56 seconds into overtime. Listen to the call from our very own Steve Carroll. Three on three hockey overtime. Break on right wing. Anaheim to the net. A shot. Score! Ryan Strom wins the game in overtime with 3.04 left in the second. And the crowd erupts with joy. They hung in there. They worked hard. They were competing all night long. And are now rewarded with a 4-3 OT victory against a very good hockey club, the Carolina Hurricanes. Next up, the Seattle Kraken and Montreal Canadiens faced off two goals that were seven seconds apart in the second period, made the difference from Montreal as they were able to pull out a 4-2 win. But that wasn't the story of the night, and really the story of the NHL on Tuesday night. Shane Wright netting his very first NHL goal, and naturally, it came against the Canadiens the team who passed him over in the 2022 NHL draft. You can imagine that that was a very special moment for Shane and certainly rewarding for the Kraken organization as well. His goal came in the first period. This was only his eighth NHL game for Seattle. So finally netting that goal to get his NHL career rolling a bit more. Friend of the show, Everett Fitzhugh had the call of Wright's goal. Kovacevic coming off his first NHL goal, plays it low. Shane Wright gets it in front. He scores! Shane Wright gets on the NHL board. His first. 
first in the National Hockey League. 1-1, 4-30 to play in the first. The big one from Tuesday night, the Toronto Maple Leafs and Dallas Stars facing off the battle of Jason Robertson and Mitch Marner to see who would keep their point streak going. Well, Marner was the winner in this case. He now has a 20-game point streak as he assisted on John Tavares' first goal of the night. He is only the fourth active player to record a point streak of at least 20 games. I really hope that this point streak keeps going for Marner because it is so impressive at the NHL level to get points night in and night out, let alone 20 games in a row. Now, the Leafs did win this game 4 to nothing, shutting out the Stars. Matt Murray was fantastic in the net for the Leafs, stopping 44 shots in his very first shutout with Toronto. And Jason Robertson, as I mentioned, that name, the guy who has been so good for Dallas, his point streak coming to an end. Listen to the call now of Tavares' goal from Joe Bowen. At the point, a shot by Marner, deflects in front of the goal, they score! Tavares backhands it home, and I think Marner's going to get an assist on this, and there is the point streak extended to 20 games. And the last game of the night, the New Jersey Devils taking on the Chicago Blackhawks. The Devils continue to dominate as they shut out the Hawks 3-0 at the Prudential Center. The Devils opened the scoring in the first period after Jack Hughes possessed the puck in the neutral zone and dangled his way through the Hawks defenseman, finding Dougie Hamilton for the one-timer. New Jersey just keeps rolling as they lead the league with 43 points and dominating, going 8-1-1 in their last 10 games. You can listen to the call now from Devils play-by-play, Matt Laughlin. Jack Hughes, force to the outside, dishes to the point. Smith, Rister, deflected in the air and gets knocked down. Kachuk wants to get it out. That's exactly what he does as Hughes wants to come right back in. Hughes on the attack. Hughes, dangling on his backhand, twist to his forehand. Hamilton scores! What a pass! What a shot! It's 1-0! And a last piece of news from the NHL this week. Nathan McKinnon is out for four weeks with an upper body injury. McKinnon left the Avalanche's game on Monday against Philadelphia. Colorado has dealt with some injuries this season already, something that they are no stranger to. But they know that they have to have some guys stepping up and showing depth in their lineup. We know that they can do that because they also did that a little bit last season. So far this year, they have 27 points in the Central Division and are sitting in fourth place. Now, this will still be a loss as McKinnon has been the leader in points with 34 so far on the team. And he also has the most assists with 26 of them. Prior to the game against the Carolina Hurricanes on Tuesday night, our very own Bally Sports SoCal Ducks analyst Brian Hayward joined us in studio. Hazy has been on the call for Anaheim since the very beginning and has shared a number of big moments throughout his career in hockey. Hear more from him in this next segment. Joining us now on Light the Lamp is Brian Hayward. Brian, great to have you join us for the first time here on DuckStream. Great to be here. <laughs> How are you doing? Life is good. You know, everything's going along uh, quite well on the broadcast side of things, I think. So uh, that part of it is all good. We all wish that there were a few more wins 
uh, for the club. But overall, I'm uh, pretty happy with the way the broadcasts are going. Just coming off a road trip, what was the trip like? Did you get to get try any good food spots? I know <laughs> Ali has told me about some of the good spots around some of the cities you guys were in last last trip. You know, um, it, it's funny. We don't get a lot of time on these road trips to really explore the cities that we're in. It's rarer than we get more than a couple of days. Um, and usually we're at practice or actually doing the game. So uh, we stick pretty much close to the hotel for the most part. And um, th there's not a lot of exciting stories to tell. Now, when we go on the East Coast trips, we tend to be on the road a little bit longer. Uh, for example, we're about to embark on a trip where we will have a couple of days or a day and a half in Ottawa prior to game day. And then you'll have an opportunity to, to find a good restaurant and mm -hmm. explore the city a little bit. But for the most part, I, I hate to say it's it's pretty boring out there <laughs> on the road. Well, you've been doing this for 29 years with yeah. the Ducks. Uh, do you have a favorite arena to travel to or a favorite city? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think, first of all, I love going to New York. Mm. And, um, you know, with the club, generally when we go there, especially now when we play the Devils and the Islanders and the Rangers, We'll plant ourselves in Manhattan for five days, and that's great. I've got a lot of college friends that work in the city, so I, I can you know reconnect with some of those guys. And at the same time, fantastic restaurants and just a great city to walk around. I, I could never live in Manhattan, <laughs> but uh, to go there and visit and be in a beautiful hotel and, and end in one place where you can actually unpack, mm -hmm. and uh, that that's a privilege that I look forward to every year. So New York would be very high on my list when we go back to Toronto. Of course, I have lots of family there. And so it gives me an opportunity to, you know, see my mom, who I, I don't get to see often enough, and uh, spend a little time with my brother as well. Let's go back a little bit. And for those that are listening, give some background on where you grew up and how you got into hockey as well. So, yeah, so I, I grew up in the city of Toronto and uh, my family moved out to a suburb when I was about eight years old, it was a suburb called Georgetown, which is on the train line that goes into the city. And my mom worked for um, a gentleman downtown. She would take the train in every morning to go to work. The reason we had moved out there is that my, my dad worked for Kodak and Kodak had opened a new distribution plant and not far from my hometown. And it was a small town. When mm -hmm. I first moved there, 14,000 people. So it was mm -hmm. a huge adjustment for me coming from <laughs> the city and playing really competitive level hockey, even at a young age. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you're in this small town and we had players uh, and small towns that we would play against where the opposition wouldn't even have hockey gloves. They'd be playing in mitts. Wow. So that was a little bit of an adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, but I love that town. Um, it's produced a fair number of NHL players. A couple guys in the NHL right now come from Georgetown and, um, just a great place to grow up. Um, my background was uh, I was a good player from the get-go. I have an older brother, and I always tell people that um, in the neighborhood that I lived in, it, there were a lot of guys my brother's age. He's two and a half years older than me. Not a lot of kids my age, so I always hung out with my big brother, and they would stick me in the net whenever <laughs> we'd play hockey. We'd play street hockey or play in the local you know, outdoor rinks. I was a goalie, and I was pretty good at it right off the bat. It uh, let me play with the big kids and compete with them. So I just kind of stuck with it. That, that's how my <laughs> goaltending career started, how I ended up in the net. 
And then I, I played in this small town until I was 13 years old. And at that point, you know, you're 12, 13, they're kind of the big development years for aspiring hockey players. I convinced my parents to let me play in the city of Toronto. Uh, so at age 14, I lived with relatives. You had to live within the confines of the city limits in order to play in what they call okay. the Metro Toronto Hockey League. Um, and so I, I did that for two years and I lived with aunts and cousins <laughs> and you have to be going to school there. And so it was kind of a vagabond existence for a couple of years. And then once you start playing junior, I could move back home and you can play uh, wherever. So um, it, it was it was a fun time. I, I had been going down and, you know, trying out for Toronto teams, knowing that I was ineligible to play for them. And then there was another guy in my hometown. We would do that every year. <laughs> and then we'd say to the coach, is it okay that we live in Georgetown? He goes, you can't play for us. <laughs> and we knew that going in and we'd come back, play for our small town team. But at age uh, 14, everything kind of changed, played really competitive hockey all the way up. And my goal was always to go play uh, U.S. college hockey. That mm. was That was my plan. And you did. You made it to Cornell and you spent some years there and very successful career in college too. Yeah, well, Cornell was a fantastic experience for me. Um, you know, as a Canadian kid, you don't know a lot about the American universities. All I knew was that in my family, there was a huge emphasis on education. And my dad had a grade 10 education. My mom had a grade 11 education. And they had both in their working careers been passed over for promotions because they didn't have the educational background. So it was made very clear to my brother and I that we were going to college, <laughs> no matter what. And and I was a good student, uh, valedictorian of my high school class. Wow. And <laughs> I decided that I wanted to go to an Ivy League school, not mm -hmm. knowing anything about the differences between them or the curriculums at the universities. And it, it just by a fluke, I ended up at Cornell, which, by the way, has the only undergraduate business program in any of the Ivy League schools, which suited me. Um, I was going to go to Princeton. They had decided at the last minute on a, on a different goaltender. They kind of left me hanging, to be honest with you. <laughs> and it just worked out that a, a team on my junior team, which was a team in Guelph, Ontario, we'd won the Canadian championship uh, that season. And all of my teammates were going elsewhere. A lot of guys that have gone on to careers in the NHL. George McPhee, who's the president of Hockey Ops in Vegas, was a teammate. Brian McClellan, who's mm. the GM in Washington, was a teammate. We had a great team. And uh, anyways, a player on my team that was named Paul Kistner was going to Cornell. I talked to Paul. He said, we could use some help in goal. I talked to the coach, or he talked to the coach. Coach called me. I was at on campus the next day. And it turned out great. Um, was a great educational experience, great hockey experience. Um, and from there, it was, it was on to the pros. So I have to ask, I learned to play hockey for the first time a week ago. And I now look at goaltenders differently. I mean, how <laughs> yeah. difficult it is to get in the net and know that you're going to take that shot however fast it is at you, the mental side of it is really interesting to me. So what was that like as a goalie, just being able to prepare yourself and not being afraid on the ice too? Well, I, I will say this. It's different now than it was mm -hmm. when I started playing. I mean, I'm 
I'm envious of the equipment that our goaltenders <laughs> yes. wear. When I when I played, um, you know, during my era, there were lots of times where goaltenders got hurt by getting hit by shots, and um, you don't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. The equipment is so good. Goalies get hurt now; they get a knee injury or a hip injury, but they don't get hurt by shots. That was much different when I played, and so there was a a different element to playing the position. You had to be a little bit crazy, I think. <laughs> and But you also had to be very cognizant of where your head was at all times. Um, I had an interesting conversation once with Ed Jockerman, who was you know from a previous era, played in the 60s and 70s, maskless. And I always thought, wow. how the heck did those guys yeah. do that? Yeah. And, he, and he told me, he said, you know, we would get into position and then when the next thought was, what do we do with our head? And then we would tuck it in behind the rear end of a defenseman, anything mm. to get our head out of the way. And they stopped a lot of shots that they never saw as a result. Interesting. Now it changed in my era. The guys were now wearing masks, but the masks weren't any good. And the chest and shoulder and arm protection wasn't any good. And it's the reason why everyone played the style that I played, which was the stand-up style. And the reason was because your head and shoulders were kind of out of the the playing field, if right. you will. If guys hit you up there, they weren't going to score. And the puck was going to go over the net. And and so, you know, it, the, the position of goaltending is completely changed. I, I say in any sport, there is no position that has evolved more since there have been changes to the equipment than the position of playing goal in hockey. Well, let's talk a little bit about your professional career then that you went on from Cornell to the NHL. Uh, and I know that you want to talk about your time in Montreal. How did you find yourself there? Well, I was in uh, Winnipeg. Uh, I, I First of all, coming from college hockey, um, I missed my entire draft year. I had mono. And oh. I, I missed the entire year. And the other goaltender on the team, who was my great friend, it, it was a season in which they changed the NHL draft from a 19-year-old draft to an 18-year-old draft. and. Um, my good friend Darren Elliott was the other goaltender on our team at, at Cornell. And Darren ended up, because I was sick all year, playing almost all of the games. I played a couple at the very end of the season. And he was drafted third by the LA Kings that year. I now became an unrestricted free agent because I was undrafted. So the next year, senior year, I have a terrific season, I'm named All-American. And now I have the choice, where can I go to play hockey? And there were a bunch of teams kind of courting me. Um, and, and so what I did was I, I looked at the rosters of all the teams that were showing interest and everybody was offering essentially the same contract. And I said, well, those guys have five guys with NHL experience and this team has three guys with <laughs> NHL experience. And I looked at Winnipeg and I said, I can make that team mm. right now, and that can be my entry into the league, and that's what happened. So I went to Winnipeg. I was uh, we had a very good team there. I would say that I had some real up and down moments in my career. I had some great seasons, had some really inconsistent seasons, and they ended up trading me to Montreal uh, for Steve Penny and Jan Ingman, and I think maybe another draft pick. I'm not sure about that, and that was the best thing that could have happened to me. The Canadians had just won the Stanley Cup 
They had a young goaltender by the name of Patrick Waugh who'd won the Conn Smythe. I think Pat was 19 or 20, mm. just a kid. And uh, the general manager, Serge Savard, was my first roommate that I ever <laughs> had in the NHL. So he knew me, knew what I was about. They brought me in to, you know, to kind of shore things up, to help Pat. And, um, and it worked out great. Who were some of the guys that you got to play with and that you have memories of stories with, too? Well, I'll tell you some funny stories. Uh, <laughs> one story that sticks out to me in Montreal is it's it's a different culture there, of course. Mm -hmm. The population is 75% uh, French-speaking. Uh, it's a bilingual city. I, I don't speak French fluently. I can understand a little. I always say after a couple of beers, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> I can understand some things. Um, but I, re I remember one of my first games playing there. And, uh, you know, it... I was a guy that was big on focus during a game. I would, you know, I would meditate during the days. Mm, I was so dialed into routine and everything else. And when the game would start, I was able to black out the noise. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear the crowd. I didn't, I didn't hear any of the entertainment that was playing. Mm -hmm. All of those were like distractions that I had no problem blocking out. But I remember a game early in my career in Montreal and, um, I stopped a breakaway and uh, two of my defensemen come back with these big dopey grins on their face. It was Craig Ludwig and uh, Peter Swoboda. And one of them, I can't remember which one, kind of wraps me on the pads and they say, how do you like your song? And I, I, I you know, I'm focused. I'm mm -hmm. like, what, what are you talking about? And they said, how do you like your song? I, go, I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. So I, I let that go, mm -hmm. finish the game. After the game, I say to them, what the hell were you guys talking about? And they said, well, they play a song when the goaltender makes a great save oh. in the home crowd. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, filed that away. Next time I'm playing a home game at the old forum in Montreal, I make another breakaway save. And now the song comes on. <laughs> and the song was lucky, 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 <laughs> I'm the luckiest one. File that away. The next game, Patrick Waugh's playing. He makes a great save. They play his song. It's the theme from Superman. <laughs> I'm going, okay, it's the theme from Superman for Pat. But it's lucky, lucky, lucky me. I got to talk to this guy. Who's and, picking and, the songs? And, well, it, it's kind of the French-Canadian dynamic. The guy that's picking the songs, huge Patrick Waugh fan. Oh, okay. You know, he doesn't want the English guy necessarily <laughs> to do well. So it was just a unique place to play. We had a great team, but there were all kinds of little interesting stories. We had great teams there. I mean, we mm -hmm. were a contending team to win the cup. We lost uh, one cup final to Calgary. We lost to the Flyers in the conference final. But every year we were one of the four or five teams that had a legitimate shot to win. Disappointed we never won the cup when I was there because it would have been fantastic. But mm -hmm. um it was fun to play on that team. Terrific defense. I played with, you know, Larry Robinson and Bob Ganey and Guy Carboneau and Matt Snaslund was my roommate because we always had roommates there. So these are Hall of Fame caliber players and uh, terrific people. I learned a lot from them. And then you transitioned your career to broadcasting after you ended your NHL career. Uh, was that a where did that interest come from? I mean, how did you pivot from playing hockey to wanting to be into broadcasting? So that is 
a, a weird story. Okay. Actually. So I, at the end of my career in San Jose, I had uh, herniated discs in my back. So my last two years of playing were uh, two seasons I'd like to forget, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. um, but it, you know, I was in the with the Sharks. The doctors had told me, you are done. You no longer can play. At the time, there was no surgical solution to my issue. It was just, you can't play anymore and you have to learn to live with this. Um, thankfully, medical science <laughs> has really evolved since then. Um, but uh, so I was sitting on the sidelines and they fired their uh, color analyst on TV with late in the season. And they said, do you want to fill in on a couple of broadcasts? I was the guy just kind of hanging around, mm -hmm. rehabbing an injury again. And um, I said, sure. Didn't know what I was doing. Got into the <laughs> booth with Randy Hahn, who is now with the Sharks, and did three or four games, I believe. And I had already known that my hockey career was over. I was going back to Cornell. I'd been admitted into their um, business program, mm -hmm. their master's program. And, um, you know, when you are accepted in, into that, you have you could defer it for two years. Okay. So, but my plan was to go back. I'd rented a home already. I, my daughter was already registered in daycare there. <laughs> and that was the plan. I was, I was thinking that I was going to attack the business side of professional sports, get my MBA, mm -hmm. go on from there. And then uh, out of the blue, I, I get a call from someone from Disney. I can't even remember the person. And <laughs> Disney had just got the, the franchise here. And they said, Somebody sent us a tape of you doing a game in San Jose. We'd like to offer you the job in Anaheim. And I was like, that's not really on the radar. <laughs> Thank you, but uh, I'll decline. I'm going to school. This is, I'm on a different path. Mm -hmm. They call back and they said, you know, a lot of people really want this job. Are you, can you at least come to Anaheim and speak with us? And uh, my wife was in the background and she said, let's, let's go. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's go. So I went, I was impressed. I double checked that I could defer the MBA plans for a couple <laughs> of years. And I signed a two year contract to work here, just saying, you know, let's give it a try. Mm -hmm. And here I am 29 years later, it's turned out to be a, a fantastic career. But my friends back home that I went, all my buddies from high school, they can't believe I do this job. <laughs> Because I was the quietest guy. Do they in the listen? Room. Do they listen to your oh, broadcast yeah, yeah. too? Oh they yeah, they listen. They critique, <laughs> of course. Um, but none of them can believe that this was my career path because I was always the quietest guy in the room. I was always mm. kind of shy when I was in high school, and they they all just they tease me like you would not believe whenever <laughs> I see them in the summertime that this is actually that I speak for a living. <laughs> and then also finding a home here in Southern California too. I'm sure. That is that was certainly a little different. I mean, you were in San Jose for a bit, so you knew about California, but finding this place here and staying for all these years too. I mean, having family across the country. Uh, what is the draw for you with with California? The sun, like yeah, like most people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I I always tell people, uh, you know, growing up in Toronto or outside of Toronto, that um, you know, on New Year's Day, be watching the Rose Parade. And I'd be sitting there, and there'd be two and a half feet of snow in the backyard, <laughs> and, and I'd be looking at that and thinking, I got to get out there at some point in my life. I got to see what mm -hmm. living there is all about. So, yeah, it, it's I, I love living in Orange County. I, there's just so much to offer here. 
it's it's now home mm-hmm. for eight months of the year for me. I do go back to Canada for four months uh, during the off season, during the summertime, but I, I consider Orange County my home. I love it here. And being with the Ducks for this long time, you were also a part of the Stanley Cup year. Uh, you know, what what has this journey been like for you? I mean, obviously you talking about how your friends never thought you'd be in a position like this, but looking back on all of these years, 29 years, how can you sum it up? Um, I, I think like anything, it's, it's, um, it's been challenging at times, you know, to go through, uh, with a franchise that has ups and downs and, and live through that. I I've, I've always, you know, we're separate from the hockey ops department, right? Right. Our, our focus is on doing the best broadcast. So for me, which, which has been really rewarding is that we've got a really tight knit group in our broadcast department. And uh, I've always looked at this. It's kind of like a team. You know, we put on a show and John Allers and myself are the, the faces of that show and with Ali Lozoff. Um, but there's so many other elements to it, to putting on a good show every night. And it's it's not consistent and it's not always easy. There are limitations when you go into certain markets. There are things that go wrong. <laughs> and ultimately, we judge ourselves and are very critical of ourselves on what the end product is that we put on the air. So I, I still find it challenging and I find it rewarding to be able to work with people and to to build the plan to put a broadcast on. And to have it be, you know, recognized as a good, solid broadcast, that that's something that still gets me fired up, still keeps me interested. Uh, we've got a game day today, but, you know, there have been conversations with the producers, with the people who put our graphics together. Mm-hmm. We've met with the coaches. We've talked with certain players. I've talked with the other team and and their broadcasters to to get a sense of what are the important elements that we need to bring to the show and to make sure that the fans get what we think they deserve, you know, when they're watching the broadcast tonight. With the team that we have on the ice right now with the Ducks, obviously it's been a difficult year, but there's a lot to look forward to in the future. When you look ahead at the bill that they're working towards, what have you thought about the way that this season has kind of rolled out so far? It's painful. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it's, it's painful for everyone. I, um, I knew what to expect when Pat Verbeek was given the job and he used the word rebuild because you knew right off the bat that Mm -hmm. in order for him to even get the job, that this was the plan that was presented to ownership here. So rebuilds are painful. And for a long time and probably too long, we avoided the rebuild here uh, with the feeling that maybe the market wouldn't be on board with that. Mm -hmm. So is it painful? Yeah, it's painful to go through it. And and our job is not to look at the future right now. Our, our job is to talk about that a little bit, but the focus still remains on putting on the game mm-hmm. night after night after night. So for me, I, I look at each individual game as how can this team that is outgunned and undermanned almost on a nightly basis, how can they compete? What has to happen in order for them to get the results because I still feel that ultimately the NHL is about how do you win games. Mm-hmm. And I, I lived uh, this experience um, painfully my last couple of years 
with the expansion San Jose Sharks, where we were outgunned mm -hmm. and outmanned every night. And when, as a goaltender, you got shelled a lot. So I'm looking at this season through the lens of John Gibson a lot this mm -hmm. year and how tough it is for him to keep his head above water and to come out every night knowing that he's going to have to be great if this team is going to be able to win hockey games. So, you know, for me, it's still exciting to, mm -hmm. to go to the rink and prepare for the game every night and to try and look at what's working on any given night and, and what hasn't worked. And it, it's, it's interesting as a local broadcaster, it's a much different mandate than when I do a national game, for instance, because um, we have bosses. There's a hierarchy within Valley Sports. And the messaging from those people at the top is we are partners of the team. We don't, we're not employees of the team, mm -hmm. but, but in a sense, we're kind of related to the team in that we're their, their announcers. So we want to be supportive of the franchise and of the team. So it's a different call and a different presentation on a local broadcast than it would be on a national broadcast. Brian Hayward, so great to have you join us here in the Paul Korea studio on Light the Lamp. We'll have to have you back again soon this season. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> As always, it is now time for my final quack for this episode, where I share my last thoughts before the end of the show. Now, on this day in Ducks history a year ago, Trevor Zegris and Sonny Milano made history. Behind the goaltender. Lukin in, the puck is thrown in front of the net, and they score! Oh, my goodness! Puck off the blade of the stick, put in by the Anaheim Ducks, and I'm guessing that surprised Lukin in, as well as all of us. Sonny Milano puts it in at the 5-14 mark of the middle period. It's 1-0 Ducks. Steve Carroll had that call, and what a moment that was. I remember sitting and watching that highlight a year ago and thinking, Wow, the game of hockey is only going to keep growing on the creative end. It's so good for the sport to see these young stars trying out different things, and I really felt like that was just the beginning. I hope to see more of that from Zegers in the future, as I'm sure we will. Thank you for listening to Light the Lamp. I am Alexis Downey. Come back again for more hockey talk, as always, right here on DuckStream. This is an Anaheim Ducks original production on Duck Street.